So I want to talk about the Bible. I want to talk about the Great Commission. It's something very important that we should all be aware of. And from time to time I've done that and found that some people didn't even know where it was or what it was, and, but we need to be aware of those things. So you might just think of it this way. In the Old Testament, before the Great Commission, before Christ came, God commissioned the people of Israel to reach the world. They were to be the priestly nation. They were to take the message of God to the world. The problem was that they, they missed the boat. The problem was they got involved in legalism. The problem was that they didn't understand it and they separated themselves from the nations around them for pretty much. But clearly Exodus 19 tells us that these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. He said, you are a priestly nation, but they didn't get the message, really. So what is the Great Commission, and uh, where was it given, and where do we find it in the New Testament? Most of you probably could name one or two places, but it's more places than that in the New Testament. So follow with me, because it is like the marching orders that Christ gave before he left for heaven. He was like a great commander who was finishing his work on earth and he, he ascended to his place of uh, leadership in heaven and left the work that he commanded us to do behind for us to do. So follow with me this morning as we follow the chronology of the Great Commission passages. How many Great Commission passages do you think there are? One, two, three, four, there are more. More than that. So let's look at them quickly this morning before we pray and commission the Gustafsons to go back again. The first one is in John 20, verse 21, and I call this the peacefulness of our commission. Each one speaks in a little different way to what we are to do. The peacefulness of our commission is there when Jesus was speaking in John chapter 20. Uh, he, had already, um, he had already been raised from the dead there in this particular passage. He says, so Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Now remember, this was, uh, this was just after Jesus had been, had been crucified on the cross and his disciples were scared. They locked themselves away in Jerusalem. They locked the doors and Jesus came and suddenly appeared inside the room with them and gave them these words. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so send I you, so send I you. It's very interesting that he, he told them peace and that's kind of the theme of this short version of the Great Commission. They did need peace because they were afraid, but he was saying the battle has been won because I am resurrected. Now, be at peace. Don't worry. Do the work that you are called to do as believers. That was basically kind of what we are, what we are hearing here from all of that because he had died on the cross. He had been victorious over death and the result was now they could go forward and do their part which was really uh, minimal compared to what Jesus had done. He'd done the main thing. I like the little story that Adrian Rogers used to give. He says, uh, tells of a man who had, uh, who had bragged that he had cut off the tail with, a, with his like, pocket knife of a, of a great terrible man-eating lion. And someone says, well, you cut his tail off, why didn't you cut his head off? And he said, oh, someone else has already cut his head off. You know, that's kind of what the Great Commission, Jesus has already done the major work. He has been victorious over death. 
Now we're just to carry the message out there. It's the same idea. So the peacefulness of our commission is really seen in John chapter 20, verse 21, and that's the first giving of the Great Commission. It's short, but there's another one now. The second one we will find in Matthew 28. This is the familiar one, 28, 18, 19, 20, right in there. And here, as you look at this, at this uh, statement of the Great Commission, it talks about the authority behind the commission there. A number of weeks had gone by since the first giving of it there, and Jesus was on the earth, as you remember, from his resurrection till his ascension for about 40 days. And this is a week or two later when we see Jesus saying here, people were coming to him, and he had gone to Galilee, and the disciples had gone to Galilee because they were instructed to go there and meet him there. They didn't know where, but when they got there to this particular mountain, there he was, and they worshipped him. And then he said to them, all authority, all authority, note that word, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this is the most complete statement of the Great Commission in the New Testament. And notice a couple things about it. First thing he says is all authority. We have the authority of the commander. Like I said, he has gone to heaven, but he's commanding the troops from up there while we are down here. All authority. That's amazing. Um, it has a wideness to it. All authority. Jesus already had all authority when he was on earth and down through history he did, but now it is widening in a sense. His, his kingly domain is widening in a sense because of his believers who follow. This is an interesting passage. Uh, it's verified, I think, in general as we think about who Jesus is and the church today. It's verified in the fact because I like to just quote the fact that there's no person in all of history that's known better than Jesus. Doesn't mean everybody believes in him, but they know who he is. And I was looking, uh, looking up to see what the statistics are on that. And they said about 70% of all human beings alive today know who Jesus was. Well, that means there's 30% we need to get the gospel to, right? 30% we need to go to somehow. It's wonderful that there's no person that can match that. And also, Christianity, in spite, in spite of the differences that we have among Christians or those who cause themselves Christians or those who call themselves Christians but maybe do not have a, a proper doctrine of who Christ is and salvation, in spite of that, it's the largest world religion. There's none larger than that. It by far exceeds all the others. That tells us something special about Christianity, not to mention the <laughs> number of Bibles sold, which are about that too. So, we know that he has great authority there, great authority. In fact, Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength, um, the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, talking about God, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. That's a place of authority, at the right hand of God. Verse 22 says, and he put 
all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church. You might want to take a look at Daniel chapter 7 on that particular point too sometime. But he already is in heaven and he does have all authority there and all authority was given him. And so that's the first part of the Great Commission passage that we know the most about. And what are we to do with it? Well, we are to uh, make disciples. Oh, by the way, Ephesians 2, I should mention that too. It goes on to say there that God highly exalted Christ and that at the name of Jesus every knee should what? Bow. Every knee should bow. That means he's got authority. Doesn't. He does have the authority today. And those who are in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. You know what that means. Well, we're to make disciples. That's what we're to do. Okay. He has authority. He says, go and make disciples. Um, being a disciple means you're one who is a learner. You're a lifelong learner about Christ. That's the basic meaning of the word disciple in the Greek language. Uh, we make not merely converts, that's not the idea, but, but those who understand about Christ and follow him as disciples. Jesus taught his twelve, he called them the twelve, and then he called them disciples, and later on he called them apostles when he left the earth and gave them the authority to continue the ministry. He said, come after you, come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's talking about them becoming disciplers, not talking about real fishing, but using that illustration of it. So, let me ask you a question. Why do sometimes we don't make disciples very well? Why do we not make disciples? Have you made disciples? Think about that. Well, I think one reason is because of ignorance. We just don't know what that is. We don't understand the Great Commission, possibly. Don't understand the Bible. Maybe it's because a low view of God. I think that's one. We have a low view of God that God um, doesn't really need us. So we have, uh, we kind of drop out on that. And therefore, we have not the great commission, but the great omission. The great omission, which is part of the title of this message. And that's what happened in Ukraine. There, there's German settlements that my ancestors came from. But we ought to be fishers of men. Another reason why we don't do that is because sometimes we're in church only because of the tradition. The tradition. I know lots of people say, well, I'm going to go to this church or that church, but uh, I really want to go back to my old church because I'm used to the tradition. They're only there for the tradition that's there. And Jews certainly were into tradition. And that's very clear when we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees there. So, sometimes we feel inadequate. We're just fearful. Remember, Jesus said, I am with you. If we are really those who trust Christ and we are following him, then we will, we will be emboldened by the fact that he is with us. He's already won the battle. But notice also it says in this verse, that in verse 19, we make disciples of all Nations, all nations, that is the word ethnos in Greek, speaking about ethnic differences. doesn't matter what area of the world, where they come from, they are worth, they are worth reaching out to and bringing the gospel to because, because there's no other way to heaven outside of that. All nations of all mankind is another way you could say that. There's a, there's a couple of reasons why we should... Why we should really um, proclaim this news. I was reading um, 
the little bulletin we get from Dr. Bob Edmondson, formerly a member of our church that now goes about the world teaching just like Michael does and Caleb does and the Mitchells from our church also. He says that over 60% of the world is under 24 years of age. Young people are the major proportion of those people, of course. And uh, that's a good reason why we ought to carry out the Great Commission. Because they're easier to reach than old people who are kind of hardened in their ways. Another reason why we should proclaim it is because the Northwest has some of the lowest church attendance in the nation. Did you know that? Not the lowest. I think at one time it was. The lowest, I found out, actually is Nevada. I wonder why. And the New England states, six of them, they are the lowest. The majority world, he says, today is where the vast amount of the world's population is. That's Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. Uh, it is also where the majority of the Christians live. Not in our part of the world, but in the majority world is where the majority of Christians in the world live. 75% of them are non-Western. So why send missionaries? Don't we need them here more so? Don't we need our missionaries right here? Well, yes we do in a way, but in the majority world we need missionaries too because because while they have a lot of Christians there, they have a lot of pastors there too. But that is where 80 to 90% of the Christian leaders in the world are that in that majority world. But almost all of them have very little or almost no solid biblical education. When we first went to Ukraine in 94, we found out none of the pastors had a formal education. They only had what they got in devotions in the morning, and then they went to work in the factories and places like that. So our role is to go there. Dr. Edmondson, who I mentioned, formerly from our church, trains these men just like Michael does and Caleb does and others do, and it's an important thing. It's an important thing for us to make disciples of all nations. Some people say, well... Those people can have their way and I've got my way and we're all going to get there some way in the end. But I have to say that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one, no one comes unto the Father except by me. John 14, 6. One of the seven I am statements that Jesus made. And the I am indicates that he is God himself from the Old Testament. Well, what about the method here? The method is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, baptizing them does not save them. In fact, baptism is not the primary word there, even though it's first in the sentence in English. But it's, it relates to the fact that they are disciples. That's where the primary meaning is. Baptism is to salvation what a wedding ring is to marriage. If you wear a wedding ring like I have here, it means I'm married to my wife, Nancy. But if I take it off, I'm still married to her because it's a, it's a matter of commitment. And baptism is a picture. It's like a wedding ring. It just pictures it outwardly if you're not baptized and you are truly a born-again believer, you need to consider asking about taking that step to be obedient to Christ. And then it says in verse 20, it says, teaching them all, 
and that's a lot, all, that I have command you, commanded you. Each one, reach one, teach one. I like that little phrase. It was something I picked up years ago. We ought to, uh, we ought to be busy. Everyone can do that some way, shape, or form. Not just pastors, not just missionaries, but that's what we need to be thinking about. Teaching them all that Jesus commanded us. And what's the promise in the next phrase? The promise is Jesus given here. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. In other words, Jesus says he's going to be with us even though he's in heaven. The presence is here through the Spirit of God. We know that. But it reminds me of, uh, of what they used to say about Julius Caesar. They said when Julius Caesar was in the presence of his soldier that every soldier was suddenly a hero. It just emboldened them to be good soldiers when they saw Julius Caesar. But that's kind of the same way it is with us, but in a much greater way when we have our commander-in-chief who is Jesus Christ. It should embolden us when we understand who he is and he commands us, as a commander would, to go into all the world, even to the end of the age. So we have the peacefulness of the Great Commission in the Gospel of John, and we have the authority of it here in Matthew that we're looking at, but there's another one we can find now, too, in the book of Mark, chapter 16, the last chapter of the book of Mark. And this one de deals with the seriousness of the Great Commission. Now, I know right away somebody's going to say, well, that last chapter of Mark, most of it is not in the older manuscripts. That's true. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. Most Bibles will have a comment about that. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It may have been added. That's a possibility because in the older manuscripts it wasn't there. But what, but the, but what is said there is true. We find it in other places in the New Testament. So I'm going to treat it as if it was uh, part of the original manuscripts for the moment. Gospel of Mark, um, basically what Mark's doing is he's just talking about what Matthew was saying and probably he was there at the same time or he had information from that same time. But keep in mind, Mark always does things in a very abbreviated fashion and his favorite word was immediately. It's over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark. But notice how short it is here. Um, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed will be baptized and shall be saved, and he who has disbelieved is condemned. That's all. That's Mark's short version of what was said there. Preaching is the primary verb here. When you look at it, preach the gospel. Um, it's not go into all the world. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel. The go is an attendant word there in the language. But the primary word here is preach. That's what we're supposed to do. Proclaim it so people might hear. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. If you've got a kitchen table, if you've got a coffee table, if you've got a cup of coffee and you're in a, cup, and you're in a coffee house and you've got a friend there you're talking to, you have a pulpit. You can proclaim the gospel to anyone, any place. Your toolbox is your Bible. Know it well. We are commanded with the seriousness of this particular giving of the Great Commission. Preach the gospel to all creation here, he says. 
And he who has believed will be saved, and those who do not will not be saved. Now, I'm going to bring my friend up, Faith Talon. I brought her up every few years. I don't do it too often because she's a great example, but I don't want to wear her out. She's in heaven now. I'm not going to wear her out. Um, she died recently. I think she was around 90. But she would send out the, the root tract we have hundreds of them to her neighborhood in Seattle and asked me for more and she would, re, she, would, she would witness to her friends all over the place. She, was a, she went to South America, helped start a training school and they named it after her in her later years because her husband who was a pastor died earlier. And last time I saw her she was in a rest home in Seattle about five years ago and it was such a touching time. I was, I was just looking forward to seeing her and having a little time of prayer with her and so forth, Nancy word, word. And she'd gone to the rest home and immediately she started three Bible studies there. That was her pulpit. And she said, I think she said, her daughter said, Faith, when you die, we're just going to put on your headstone, don't stand there, do something. And I think that's probably what's on her headstone and I haven't seen it. Don't just stand there, do something. <laughs> I love that. Enrico brought up a good saying the other day. He said, uh, the little saying that we often hear is not really very accurate. And he was making that point. He said, always proclaim the gospel, but when necessary, use words. That's kind of a cop-out, really, that you don't really have to use words except once in a while. But proclaim the gospel about how you, how you live, you know, and your, your, maybe your kindness or your way of helping people and things like that is a good way. That, there's nothing wrong with that. We should do that, but it does take words and a person cannot be saved without hearing the words of the gospel because it brings understanding. Thank you, Enrico, for bringing that up to us. They must hear, Romans 10, 14 says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a preacher. He who has believed, that's faith, simple faith, and has been baptized, that's the symbol of that, but it does not require baptism for salvation here. I'll, tell, I'll show you why. It says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but then it says, he who has not believed will be condemned. It says nothing about baptism there. It's belief. That's the problem in that. If you don't believe, you will be lost. Regardless, even if you've been baptized, you will be lost. Forever is a long time to be in the eternal place of punishment the scripture speaks about. Condemnation, place of condemnation. Only a lack of faith or disbelief will condemn you there. Well, there's a fourth giving of the Great Commission here also this morning. So Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, jot these down. And here we see the repentance of our commission. It speaks about repentance as being part of it another way. This one here uh, also appears uh, to James and the apostles in Jerusalem, Jesus did, during that 40-day period. And he spoke about the Old Testament and that he would rise from the dead earlier and so forth. And he did rise from the dead and then he gave this phrase in Luke 24, verse 47. This is after the resurrection again. And that repentance 
key word repentance in this one here, for the forgiveness of sin be proclaimed in his name in all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is, the, this is a very popular one too that we, we all pretty well are familiar with. But it's talking about repentance. And what is repentance? It's, it's, it's a change of mind. A change of mind. A change of mind about God. It's a change of mind about your sin. It's seeing it like God sees it, not like you see it or dismiss it. It's a change of mind about the direction you're going. It's like a train going down the track and suddenly it stops and the engineer realizes the problem. He reverses it and they go backwards. They go back to the other direction, which may be the safer direction there. So it's a change of mind about our direction with God. And it does require the mind. Metanoeo is the word there. It is the mind that thinks and understands God. And Christianity is not a mindless Religion, it requires us to, to think. So uh, Luke includes repentance, which means those kinds of things, a change of mind, no amount of almsgiving, no amount of um, fasting or prayers would constitute that. A change of mind means recognizing our own lostness, like Romans 3.10, which tells us that we're all terribly lost there. And then there's one, other, there's one other Great Commission passage that we don't want to miss, and that's in Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. We looked at the peacefulness and the authority and the seriousness and the repentance, but here we see the power, the power of the Great Commission also in number five. This is just before Jesus ascended to heaven, and um, it's in the beginning of the book of Acts, just before Pentecost, and in this one here, they're all chronological, as you can see. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power, as he spoke to the uh, disciples there. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the world. They're going to receive power. Holy Spirit power, of course, that's what we know that is referring to. They're going to have power to be able to do the witnessing. The Spirit of God will work through them. And a short period later, there was Pentecost that took over, and there was a miraculous gift of speaking in tongues there that indicated that that power was there, and it began there. And uh, that power is available for every believer, every believer. Of course, the speaking of tongues lasted for a good part of a generation and then seem to not be mentioned in the later books of the New Testament. But the power is still there. Not that God couldn't do it. He can do anything he wants to. And we have that power to do the work. Starting in Jerusalem, that's where it all started. That's where Jesus was crucified. That's where his ministry was after it was in Galilee. That's where they put him on the cross. That's where he was resurrected from. It starts in Jerusalem, and that's where they were to start. And then in Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem. It'd be like the other half of Israel. That was a big area there to the south, Judea. And you move out to that area. It took the church a while to move out to that area and begin spreading the gospel there. And then to Samaria, a little bit to the north of Jerusalem was Samaria, a small area that had sort of uh, half Jews and half Gentiles. They had, they had mixed together and they were hated by the other Jews. But he said, you want to go to Samaria too. You need to go to Samaria, even though you don't like those people because God loves them 
also. And even to the remotest part of the world, do you know where that is? Right here. This is a remote part of the world for some of those people at that time. And God continues to work, and that's Ukraine today for our missionaries we're speaking of this morning. So uh, <clears throat> our missionaries are being sent, and um, we're very thankful for that. I'm going to invite uh, Michael and the family to come up to the platform. We are all to carry out the Great Commission. May it not be an omission of our church, and we just have an empty building a century later. May it be the Great Commission as they come. I'm going to ask you while they're coming, just how many of your prayers are associated with winning people to Christ and, and, and the commission aspect of it? Um, how many people have you actually shared the gospel with this last year? Think about that. Uh, it's easy to be busy in doing other things and kind of dismiss it, but come on up, guys. Come on up. I'm going to ask our board members, our elders, and our deacons to come up also. We're going to pray for them now and commission them to return to the field of Ukraine again as our missionaries, which means that we are to support them. We are to be behind them. We are to pray for them. We are to encourage them along the way. So would you do that too?